Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, today... Our guest, so excited. We've met here virtually for the first time today. Someone I've, I've heard about for a long time and really enjoyed reading her article in the handbook, her chapter, Families in Chronically Unsafe Environments, which is our topic today. And I'm so happy to be joined by Gwen Daniel. Gwen is a systemic psychotherapist and trainer, been at places like Tavistock Institute, which she'll talk about today, has a wealth of experience working in both children's services and adult mental health. She's run workshops all over the country, including places like London, Belfast, Sydney. Um, she is a co-author of some seminal works in our field, Gender and Family Therapy, Growing Up in Step Families, and a co-editor of Mirrors and Reflections, Processes and Systemic Supervision, as well as many other articles and book chapters taught in the UK and internationally on many topics, including what we're going to talk about today around Israeli and Palestinian conflict and working in unsafe environments. She's on the steering group of the UK Palestine Mental Health Network, which takes an advocacy-based approach, highlighting effects of human rights abuses on the mental health of Palestinian citizens. It also aims to sustain connections between psychotherapists and their colleagues in Palestine. She has visited Palestine on many occasions and has given presentations in the UK on the effects of Israeli military occupation on the family life of Palestinians. So as always, I'm so looking forward because I don't know a lot about this area. So I'm looking forward to educating myself, but also seeing how this applies to me, who uh, trains therapists in the US and practices in Louisville, Kentucky. So how can we take an international issue and make it relevant to our work if we are, uh, uh, if we don't have that background. But the first question, Gwen, is always, how did you get into this field of systemic therapy, MFT, and specifically, how did you get involved as someone from across the pond in the UK working with the Jewish-Palestinian conflict? Well, first of all, Eli, I'd like to thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Just to say a bit about my background, I trained a very long time ago as a social worker and was extremely influenced in my work by social contexts. The late 60s, early 70s were a time where social work was very radical. There were many anti-psychiatry movements. There was a huge attention to social context in the way people live. And I think I've taken that with me into systemic family therapy. I first became interested in family systems work, really through, partly through the work of Salvador Minuchin. And I was lucky enough to do a workshop with him in Philadelphia when I 
had a year in the United States uh, in 1980. And I think what has kept me so involved and what segues, if you like, into the Palestine work is the way that with systemic therapy and with the systemic approach, we always have ways of linking up different levels in which people live. So we think about individuals and their worlds, but we always think about how those worlds are constructed socially, but also how groups of people in their living arrangements are affected by the socio-political context in which they live. But I think systemic psychotherapy has enabled me to keep moving between the levels at which we all live. And to connect to Israel-Palestine, I'm married to an Israeli, and my husband is a professor in the international relations of the Middle East. So ever since we've been married, which is quite a long time now, 46, 47 years, um, I have been involved in that world of politics. But I think the world of peace politics, leaderships, peace negotiations, diplomacy is one level. But I think it was when I started becoming involved in meeting Palestinian mental health professionals, becoming much, much more involved in mental health issues, that it was possible for me to make those connections between the, you could call it the macro world, the big world of uh, power politics, which we, of course, if we're involved in that, um, know how both engrossing and frustrating it is. But for me, to be able to look at the effects of these things on people's daily lives and how the enormous imbalance of power between Israel, the state of Israel, and the Palestinian people that are under its control. And I can say just a little bit, if you like, about um, about that context. Yes, because some of our listeners will have very little knowledge of this decades-long conflict. But first of all, what you said struck me uh, very much in that oh, I teach in a program that is a only program in the country, a dual MFT program housed within a school of social work. So we often talk about how the macro informs your practice of the micro. And you need to know those contextual and societal factors and to be able to work with those individuals, couples, and families in that context. And you have a very personal connection. I mean, you sound like an advocate for social justice anyway from your background, but your your married life also gives it personal resonance with you. As you give us background to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, tell us how you entered into that. I'm curious of the story, how you went there to start working and what that was like. But yeah, give us some background on the conflict. Okay, I'll just say one thing which I would have said earlier, but you've reminded me of it, Eli, which is that the other great influence on me is feminism. And I think within feminism, feminism provides a way of thinking to link up, in a way, daily living. The personal is the political. So I think that that framework has been especially important in thinking about how do macro context, social discourses, how do they infiltrate our ways of thinking about ourselves? And that is very relevant in this particular area of work in thinking about Palestine. 
So I'll just give, I probably ought to have brought a map with me. That would have been helpful, but I don't have a map. And I imagine many people here will know something about the situation. Okay, so um, basically the State of Israel was formed, was created in 1948. The history goes back a long way, and my own country, the UK, played uh, a, an old and not honourable part in all of this. Because the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration, which handed um, a country where less than 10% of the population were Jewish, 90% were Palestinian, basically handed it over to the Zionist settlers and facilitated Jewish settlement within Palestine quite deliberately and excluded Palestinians from political participation. When the State of Israel was founded, there was a massive expulsion of Palestinians, 750,000 Palestinians left their homes. Some of them were pushed out and some of them fled because of the warfare and fighting. Probably more important to hold on to even than the question of in what circumstances did they leave is the fact that they were not allowed to return, which was against international law. So the first dispersion was Palestinians from what is now the land of 48 Israel. Many of them went to refugee camps in surrounding countries, and some moved to refugee camps in what is now the West Bank, which Israel um, conquered in 1967. So there have been periods of dispersion, and probably the most important thing to imagine now, which is why I'm sorry I don't have a map, but Palestinians are both scattered in refugee camps, as I've said, and the refugee camps in Jordan are still one's places where Palestinians are trapped, have to live. And the refugee camps there, there is 20% of the population of Israel within its 48 borders are Palestinians, so they're another group. Then there are the Palestinians living on the West Bank, uh, which was conquered, as I say, in 67. And then there was the population of Gaza, two million people who live in Gaza, who are completely disconnected. All of these bits of Palestine are disconnected. The other group of the people who live in Jerusalem, who also have another set of disconnections from both Palestinians within the state of Israel and Palestinians on the West Bank. So maybe the key thing to think about is fragmentation. And while no Palestinian refugees were able to return to the land of Israel, uh, even though the United Nations that they were um, under international law, they should have been allowed to. Their villages were mostly destroyed and land theft, because it is theft since 1967, is proceeding. So Israel continues to build settlements on Palestinian land to this day and in fact is increasing it. So for Palestinians, their hinterland is shrinking all the time. And we're talking about a conflict that is decades and decades old. So we're also the unique thing about something like this is the transgenerational legacy of the trauma 
that goes through. And because it pertains to things like nationalism and religious and national identity, I imagine it is very polarizing. There's no one in a middle ground on this. You're either on one side or the other. Yes, I think I. it is very polarized, of course. I think it's important when we think about conflict, and this is this is very relevant to what I'm going to speak about when I get more down to the the kinds of ways we think about mental health and the way we think about family interventions, is that if we think about conflict, it looks as if we're talking about two sides who are equal. But that is absolutely not the case. The disparity of power, inequity of power, is overwhelming. So Israel controls every aspect of Palestinian lives on the West Bank, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the 20% who live within the state of Israel, do have civic rights. They have the right to vote. They have um, representatives. They participate in social life. But there are many levels of discrimination regarding them. But on the West Bank and in Gaza, Israel totally controls the entire gamut of Palestinian life, added to which, of course, as you know, in your own country, the United States, the support for Israel is overwhelming. So at many levels, Palestinians, and this is relevant to mental health, Palestinians' experience is one of Israel being able to act with complete impunity and Palestinians having very few modes of resistance available to them. Although, of course, Palestinians do resist because Palestinians do not accept what's happened to them, which maybe takes us a bit to that domain of international, of intergenerational trauma that you spoke about. This idea, this context is so important. So you're right. To an American, this conflict looks one way. And to someone that has been in the front lines, as you have, it looks completely different. So it is not this neutral stance. So if you are a therapist practicing in an area with very opposing views and ideologies, so do you stay neutral or do you pick a side and declare your position? Well, I think that's a really good question, Eli. I think on matters of social justice, I don't think there isn't, you you cannot be neutral. So I think in terms of abuses of power, oppression, what we can think of, and in fact, what the early Zionists termed it as colonialism, settler colonialism, colonizing a land, it's not possible to be, if you have a sense of social justice, It's not possible to be neutral regarding that. But I think that you cannot be neutral. Um, You can take a position in favour of justice, but you can also be open to different narratives because all of us need to be. I mean, just to give an, an example, a possible analogy, if you think about domestic violence, If a man is violent to his female partner, a therapist does not take a neutral position. A therapist takes a position against that abuse of power. But that doesn't mean that at the same time as taking a position about that, that the therapist is not interested in what the man, what the oppressor's story is, what the abuser's story is, and what's, and in fact, it's ethically important both to take a position against violence 
and to protect the victim from the violence, but also to understand how this came about. So I think it's important to understand, and we all know about the traumas that the Jewish people have suffered. It's absolutely essential to understand how that influences not just the behavior of the State of Israel, but also the support for Israel worldwide among diaspora Jews, because Israel is part of, for many Jews, part of their identity. Understanding that doesn't mean that you, you don't take a position of acting in solidarity for justice for Palestine. Very important distinction, so eloquently said. So I have many questions about the specific population, but how did you get over there work? Right. Well, I have, I don't work in Palestine. Right. I have been to Palestine many times. The network that you referred to was set up in solidarity with Palestinian mental health professionals. I have taught in Palestine, but I mostly do what I can to support our colleagues in Palestine. And I have to say that includes learning from them, because what we learn from people who are having to to help families in conditions of such adversity is enormous, because we can learn from the way Palestinian mental health professionals have to take the context of oppression in their work at, at every level. That is what they are immersed in. And they, of course, are subject to the same, they're not necessarily subject to the same level of poverty and deprivation, but they are subject to the same level of oppression. And I can speak a bit more about that. I do. I want to know how the oppression influences intimate relationships and family relationships and mental well-being in families over there, because it must be a a built-in to the work, but it certainly has to have a cumulative and a societal effect. So what does that look like? There are many ways in which, I'll just give a few examples, I think, of how oppression and violent control, because the West Bank in particular, I mean, Israel is a militarized society, which is not greatly to its own advantage, but the impact of a militarized occupation of the West Bank means that people are subject constantly to exertions of power and control. So you probably know that there is a what the Israelis call the security wall, the Palestinians call the apartheid wall, which cuts right across Palestinian territory. In many places, severs people from their land, severs people from other villages, from their family in other villages. And in this wall are checkpoints And if people want to go through them, they are subject to surveillance, control. They have no choice about whether they they submit to, to being checked. They often have to wait for hours in their cars to go through a checkpoint. Checkpoints can be closed at random. So at every level of ordinary life, Palestinians are reminded of who is in control. And that means, for example, there are various arrangements. So there's a Palestinian authority which has control over the main Palestinian cities. It doesn't have complete control because Israel can, for example, if Israel wants to 
arrest somebody within an area covered by the Palestinian Authority, they will simply do that. They will come in and remove somebody from their home and arrest them. Palestinian parents on the West Bank cannot protect their children. If their children are out on the streets and picked up by soldiers, Palestinian parents have very little ability to protect their children. Soldiers can arrive at a home in the middle of the night, and I personally know people for whom this has happened, and they will simply remove a child from their home. So there is a constant experience of intimidation. And maybe one thing that it's important to, I'll just go backwards slightly, but to say if you have an imbalance of power, such as we have in Israel-Palestine. The security of the Israelis is always at the expense of the insecurity of Palestinians. So in Israelis' eyes, Palestinians are seen as dangerous people, including children, as security threat. And so because they're viewed in that way, they have no safety themselves. So soldiers may enter a house and arrest a child. And the experience, if you're, I don't know, if you're a father, you have to what? Because you have heavily armed soldiers who come into your home. You cannot do anything other than stand by while your child is dragged off and arrested. So I think the sense of, I mean, that is very shaming. It's very demoralizing for parents. It makes parents feel completely impotent because they cannot protect their children. So I think those in psychological impacts are extraordinarily damaging in the relations between parents and children. If you're a Palestinian, you have to live in this hyper-vigilant state all the time, which cannot be good. But then this ability, it's one thing about being angry or feeling in danger, but then the shame that you said, these primary emotions, the shame that comes from not being able to protect your children. I, I can't imagine, as you said, being a parent, what that would be like. And then again, we're talking about decades long when of this. So it is also this intergenerational effect that children growing up learning this or their parents learned that with very little hope of things changing, the cumulative effect of that over the generations just must be oppressive to a degree I can't even really wrap my head around. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And of course, if you witness what you have tried to build up, if I mean, most many Palestinians on the West Bank are farmers, and they very particularly grow olive trees and harvest olives. Settlement building involves coming in, digging up olives, which may be 100 years old, and reducing people to having to witness the theft of their land. And then children have to witness their parents' impotence in witnessing that. So the experience is of, A, for children, not knowing how your parents can protect you, but also how you find a way of maintaining dignity when your um, your room for achieving any justice is so, so minimised. So, for example, if your land is stolen, what would you normally do? You would go to court, but you very 
Palestinians on the West Bank hardly ever have any success in going to court because the Israeli legal system does not recognize often their entitlement, their land titles. So there are many, many ways in which oppression operates. I wanted to just say something about the one context that I do work with, particularly, although I'm not working on the ground for fairly obvious reasons, and that's in Gaza. And we recently did a session with the team that I work with in Gaza, which are called the Palestine Trauma Centre. They are an extraordinary team who do amazing work. And we did a, a session on history and intergenerational trauma and thinking about how the, I mean, we're now probably four or five generations from the original, the people who were dispossessed of their land in 1948. Most people in Gaza are refugees. They're not original inhabitants of Gaza. They have been, they were pushed out in 1948 into Gaza. So their identification is with villages in the West Bank. They will have, they have memories of that experience, which come across as if they were yesterday. They're almost frozen in time. And I think that freezing in time is also because nothing has happened to bring justice. So if you think of trauma, if you think of an intergenerational trauma, the only thing that can heal trauma effectively is justice. We all know that people who suffer traumas in whatever context, if there's no A, acknowledgement of their trauma, and B, no justice, then the trauma lives on. As family therapists, try to help systems either solve a problem if it's solvable or accept or tolerate, which which probably not going to change. So in this situation, it's challenging because not only do you have a thing that has lasted for decades and decades, but it's unlikely, as you said, to change. And justice, while important, has not happened yet. So if, if I'm a family therapist working with the Palestinian system family, how do I engender hope, which we know is one of the biggest common factors of what makes psychotherapy successful when it's hard to be hopeful about what you've just been describing the last 20 or 30 minutes, number one. And number two, it's hard to help people accept or tolerate. We can do that, except in conditions where things are not safe, like you said, in your domestic violence analog. It's like you need to understand the context, but you don't validate that it's right, but it's hard to accept or tolerate things when things are very unsafe and have been for a long time. So how does a therapist work with a family like this? And what are the typical presenting issues that someone on the front lines would see working with the Palestinian family? I'll just say something about, or two things really. One is Kata Weingarten has a very important phrase, which is about doing hope. So hope isn't necessarily, I mean, if you look at all the, the history of what's happened since 1948 and, and before, the international system is stacked against, no, has not achieved justice. Palestinians' situation has gone from bad to worse. The situation in Gaza is utterly catastrophic. Gaza was declared by the United Nations unlivable in 2012. 
the United Nations said that Gaza would no longer be habitable by 2020, and we are now in 2021, and two million people are still living there. So hope is in very short supply, but it's actually incumbent on us as citizens, and it's the ethic of our work as systemic therapists, to try to do hope. And I think hope lies not necessarily in any expectation of things getting better or any necessarily any optimism, but I think it lies in, there's an Arabic word which Palestinians use a great deal, which is sumud, and translated it means steadfastness. So I think that sumud for Palestinians means that you do not give up. You keep going. And for those of us who work in Palestine or with Palestinians, then it's incumbent on us not to give up. Uh, so solidarity is not just a vague term. It actually means something. It means bearing witness. It means putting ourselves in a position to, to speak out, even though speaking out in this context can be very difficult. It means supporting our colleagues who are actually working in mental health in Palestine. And I will say a bit about the kinds of things that people are doing that I think seem to be extremely useful. But for people like myself, who are therapists who are engaged with Palestine, so for example, the work that I do in Gaza involves consulting with the team who are in Gaza. We work, we've always because it's impossible to go to Gaza. We've always worked through Skype and now through Zoom and talk about what people are doing. We offer reflections, we offer uh, support, and probably more importantly, the people of Gaza feel isolated and forgotten. They're under siege. They cannot leave. It's very difficult to leave Gaza. So offering a window to the world to the outside world where we as professionals engage with the work that the professionals in Gaza are doing is far more important probably even than I necessarily have always realised. You can sometimes think that bearing witness is not very much, but being intimately in contact with people who are doing the work is hugely important. Yeah, it's this parallel process. You are providing support to the frontline people that are providing support to these Palestinian families. It's an isomorphic process. How powerful. And you've been using technology like we're using now for a long time to do this. Yes. I not realize that. What is that like for you as a kind of master trainer and clinician to give that support remotely like that? Well, I think the first thing anybody feels is what I'm doing is absolutely, totally inadequate, not good enough, a drop in the ocean. But I think that's not a particularly helpful, because if I think that way of thinking can push you to disassociate if you feel impotent to do anything. And I think it is incumbent to think about the small things that we can do that make a difference. And just a quote from Kate Wangas Garten, 
again, actually, I'd, a phrase that I found very helpful. Just because an act is small, it doesn't make it trivial. So I think for me, I can learn from the Palestinian idea of sumud to be steadfast. And I think once you get involved in, and I will, I promise, come on to say a bit about what people are actually doing. I think that once you get connected up to the spirit of people who will not stop, we can call it resistance, we can call it steadfastness, it's all of those things. We can then come alongside in solidarity. And the other person whose work I um, value a lot is um, Vicky Reynolds, who I'm sure lives in California, I'm sure people know her well here. You know, she makes the point that what people need when they're suffering is connectedness, and that most of the suffering emerges out of being disconnected. So one of our main tasks, in a way, is to find ways to stay connected. And settler colonialism disconnects people because it separates them. As we've seen in Palestine, people can't get together very easily because of the separation wall. The Israeli occupation disconnects people. So acts of connection in whatever form they come have an enormous importance. So just to say a bit about some of the interventions that I think have been really significant. One of the main, there's a, a Palestinian trauma counselling centre in Ramallah, which is the main city in the West Bank. They do an enormous amount of work. One of the things they do is a specific project with families where their house has been demolished. House demolitions are used by the Israeli military authorities in the West Bank and Jerusalem. They happen either because Palestinians build their houses without permission, which they have to do because they never get permission. So if a population is growing, it needs more housing space. But if you don't get permission, which is mostly not given, then you build without permission, and then the army can come in and demolish your home. And this is very widespread in the West Bank, in certain areas of the West Bank and in Jerusalem. And so families live under constant fear that their house will be the next to be demolished. And when it happens, everything is destroyed. So the project really is to offer support and sustenance, often of a very practical kind, to surround a family with care, compassion, food, alternative shelter. So these are not things that you might think of as therapeutic in a kind of limited way, but they are acts of compassion and solidarity at a time that's needed. And they do remarkable work. Um, so that's one example of a very specific area where a project would take place. Another is one that I've become, that I've been quite involved with, which is by a group called Defence for Children International, who are based in Hebron. And they have done wonderful projects with children. Firstly, of setting children up as young researchers, which is an idea that comes from narrative therapy. The idea, so that children do a lot of inquiries of other children, they interview other children 
about their lives and they feed back the results they get from their questionnaire about how children are thinking about their lives. They feed them back to a children's parliament and they have, these are children usually sort of um, between the ages of about 14 and 16. So children have some opportunity, again, as I was saying, that children's lives are massively circumscribed. Hebron is probably one of the worst places to grow up as a child because your entire living space is constrained by settlement building, which is encroaching on the whole Palestinian population. But it gives Palestinian young people a chance to have some agency, to have some impact on decision-making, not obviously in regard to Israel, but with regard to the Palestinian Authority. So young people do investigations of human rights, or they might take up issues to do with schooling. So it's very much a project around creating children's citizenship and giving children some sense of agency and some and power over their story, so to speak. Some say. power, yes. This, these ways of working and building solidarity and tapping into hope. I think a, another intervention, right, tapping into faith and spirituality. How may a therapist working with a population like this tap into that, which seems another one of those resilient, protective factors that is necessary? Well, faith is hugely important. And I think, as we wrote in the chapter, that Muhammad, my colleague, wrote about how much his faith means to him and how it sustained him very much around maintaining an ethical way of living and uh, very much around the idea that if you live a good life, you will have a better life in the hereafter, in the afterlife. I think faith and ritual have enormous capacity to to connect people, because again, we're talking about what connects you. So rituals around religious practices, mosques are clearly central part of the community. In Gaza, you really are living in, I would almost call it a liminal state between life and death. Life is so precarious. And of course, we know that Gaza has been subject to horrific bombardments. So I think that faith also kind of acts as a way of connecting life and death in a way that speaks to the experience of the present. You know, I've worked with a person I know personally who works in another project in Gaza, who in the last 2014 bombardment lost 27 members of his family. So I think when a the impact on you of that is that when you go to bed at night, you never know if you're going to wake up in the morning because you don't know whether your apartment building will get hit. But you have to kind of find a way of navigating life and death, and faith does that. And faith also, of course, does bring some kind of ideas about certainty, grinding people in, in their lives and in their relationship to each other. Let's go to the question. So building on that, Peggy writes, three major religions regard the land of Israel and Palestine as holy ground. Is there a role for the religious leadership to help resolve this longstanding conflict? What do you think about that? 
I think I would probably say they have not had a great success so far. I think I do, I would say, and um, this is something my husband speaks about. My Obviously, my husband is Jewish, and he speaks about Jewish values, which are truth, justice, and peace, are very core Jewish values. And I think that for many Jews, if they see what Israel is doing as transgressing those values, then I think that creates a very different way of thinking about how, A, how you're being represented by a state which transgresses those values, but also how what Israel is doing might also make you feel vulnerable. So I think that there is some need. I mean, you could say it's unfortunate that three major religions focus on the same territory. But of course, historically, we know why that is. I don't know that um, religious leaders can do very much. But I think that the population, the people who adhere to the values that come from their religions can do something to decide what position they want to take. So Christians, for example, who, and we know, of course, that Christian evangelists tend to um, be fanatical supporters of Israel. The Christian evangelists in the United States support Israel. But for many Christians, the way Israel, there are many very excellent Christian projects that go into Palestine and support Palestinians. There's a project in Hebron, which is a Christian group, I can't remember what they're called, and what they do is escort children to school every day, Palestinian children who otherwise would be attacked by settlers when they're on on their way to schools. So I think all religions can play an enormously important part in maintaining justice and objecting to oppressive practices, but I'm not quite sure that I think religious leaders will do very much but maybe I'm being too cynical. All right, let me get to one more question and then we will kind of tie it all together and wrap up. So another question in the Q&A says, do you work with family therapists in Israel with an alternative view and or experience for a balanced approach to moving forward? I know a lot of Israeli therapists and there are some very good, I don't know whether this will answer the question, but it might be about possibilities for Jews and Palestinians to work together. I think um, there are some very good projects within Israel. There's a group called, this is not, these are not family therapists, but uh, there are people who work together in solidarity. There's a group called Combatants for Peace, which is um, Israelis and Palestinians who jointly work together. But I think, I mean, if you think the word collaboration has two meanings, doesn't it? It can be collaborating in an equal way, and it can be collaboration with an oppressor. So I think that joint working always has to have a realistic appraisal of where the power dynamic is. And if that isn't recognised, there's a great aim on the part of fund-giving authority bodies that only fund only projects will get funded if they're not if they don't have any kind of political agenda to them which makes it very difficult because you can't take the politics out of this so i think there are certain criteria that are necessary for people to work to work together and one is really acknowledging the power imbalance inequity 
And if that can be acknowledged, then I think, because there are many, many Israelis who do not support their government, and there does need to be solidarity. Yes, when I think of everything I've heard from you this hour, what I will take with me, I like to generalize some of these themes to our listeners that are working with populations that will never work with a Palestinian family or have any direct exposure to Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I think of this idea of what we do is having a sense of social justice, even if we're not social workers, uh, social justice informed work to couple and family therapy. I take that away from it. I take this idea of samud, of which I learned today, of, of steadfastness, uh, of building solidarity within the community, uh, that uh, taking somebody from having suffering alone like this, connecting to other people that have those same feelings and shared sense of, of suffering. And lastly, as far as their own narrative, what you were saying about some of their need, kind of working with the younger population that have experienced oppression to help them restory their lives, so to speak. So Gwen, you're so articulate. We could have talked a whole other hour. If our listeners and many will want to continue the conversation with you or reach out to you personally, what is the best way to contact you? Well, I think the best way would be through my email. Gwen's chapter, Working with Chronically Unsafe Families, is again featured in the Systemic Handbook of Family Therapy, which is the focus of our AMFT podcast live series, and we're expanding our focus to work with global issues and global mental health. So this was relative for so many reasons today. And because some people will be listening to this in audio format later, if you could just read out your email as well. My email is danielgwynn at gmail.com. Daniel Gwynn is all one word, capitalized Daniel. Great. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you even virtually, and I'm so glad for the work you're doing, and I look forward to continuing the dialogue down the line. Let me remind our listeners or viewers today, as always, you want to go to aamft.org under Enhanced Knowledge. You can go to the podcast and see all three seasons of back installments for you, where we feature the latest and greatest in all things affecting systemic therapy locally and internationally, as we've talked about today, as well as the pioneers that have shaped our field. As always, drop us a line, your information and your feedback informs what we do on the AMFT podcast. You can reach the AMFT at communications at amft.org or on Twitter at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. You can also get a hold of me at elicarum.com and Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.